Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is Bennett Sims. He is the recipient of the Bard Fiction Prize, the Joseph Brodsky Rome Prize, and the Pushcart Prize. His new book is Other Minds and Other Stories, which is published by our friends at $2 Radio. Bennett, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It is an honor to have you here. And Bennett, uh, my first question for you before we dive into your novel is about your work at Iowa and your publisher, $2 Radio. You teach fiction at the University of Iowa. Is this a uh, writing class or a literature class? Yeah, so I teach creative writing classes within the English department at the University of Iowa. Iowa is, of course, home of a really famous graduate MFA program, the Iowa Writers Workshop, where graduate mm -hmm. students um, study fiction and uh, poetry. There's also a nonfiction MFA called the Nonfiction Writing Program, which is an MFA for essayists and memoirists and journalists. Um, so I teach in the English department, which is separate from the writer's workshop. So I teach like fiction courses for undergraduates. And I sometimes also teach MFA seminars in the nonfiction program. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, the fiction courses I teach are a mix of like writing workshops and literature courses. So this semester I'm teaching a course on horror and weird fiction, where we read a lot of ghost stories and cosmic horror and so on. And then the students workshop their own work. Oh, that's really cool. Um, I would like to take that class. Um, and how does someone who teaches fiction at Iowa find themselves publishing multiple books with $2 Radio? And what has it been like working with $2 Radio through multiple books now? Yeah, so I found $2 Radio through my first book, which was a novel. Um, that was a book that I was working on while I was a student at Iowa, a graduate student in the fiction program. Um, it was sent around, $2 Radio accepted it. I worked on it with them. I really enjoyed that process. Um, and since then, when I've finished books, um, I've submitted it to them. Um, and so the two books I've published since then are both collections, White Dialogues, and then this book, Other Minds and Other Stories. Um, and yeah, they're a great press. Um, they, As they say, they're a family-run press. So I work mostly with Eric Obanoff, my editor, and, and his partner, Eliza. Um, and they're really hands-on with the cover art and the typography and the design. And they involve me in a lot of those discussions. And they're just very high energy and, and visionary and fun to work with. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Bennett. Um, let's now jump into this excellent collection of stories, other minds, and other stories. Um, first, uh, let's talk um, about the art of the one-page story, and forgive me if I'm butchering this pronunciation. Uh, as your first story, La Mumia di Grotta Rosa is, <laughs> um, do you consider this story to be flash fiction or no? Or is this even something that you think about? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'll back into it. So mm -hmm. I do write a lot of what I consider to be flash fiction. And I um, am a huge admirer and reader of masters of that form, like Lydia Davis, whose work is often a sentence long. Um, that piece in particular has 
like a formally interesting origin in that it was commissioned as wall text. Um, so I spent a year at this interdisciplinary artist residency called the American Academy in Rome, uh, which is a really lovely um, residency. Um, there are lots of scholars there, like archaeologists and classicists, but also artists like painters and photographers and writers and so on. Um, and one of the photographers there, uh, Nicholas Leung and his partner, the writer, um, Judy Chung invited people to collaborate on an exhibition where Nicholas would take photos around Rome and all of the scholars and writers um, at the Academy would write sort of ecrastic reactions to his images that would be included with the images as wall text in this giant exhibition um, at the Academy. Um, and so I wrote those stories, uh, which are works of fiction, for Nicholas's images um, as wall text to accompany them. And then when I collected them in, in the collection, he graciously allowed me to include his images as well, um, mm. which appear on the opposite page. So yeah, on, at, at one and the same time, there are works of flash fiction, kind of like autonomous short paragraph long pieces. Mm. Um, and they are um, ekphrastic wall texts, which are meant to be read in the margins of this photograph that's on the, on the left-hand side of the page. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, Lydia Davis is great. I'm partial to Amy Hempel. Uh, as our listeners know, lots of uh, fantastic flash fiction out there. Um, I now want to talk about the idea that the mummy in this story was quote unquote undiscovered until 1964. My question is, are mummies meant to be discovered? That's a great question. And that's one of the sort of paradoxes that interests the narrator of that story that, and so I'll say that this is based on a real exhibit um, at this Museum of Antiquities and, and Classical Culture in Rome called the Palazzo Massimo Museum. Most of what you'll find there are really beautiful sculptures um, and mosaics and, and uh, murals and things, but in the basement, there is a collection of coins um, and then other kinds of jewelry that and archaeologically archaeological discoveries. And in the back room, um, there's just this single body on exhibit, a, a mummified girl that was discovered in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And she's the only mummy in that museum. Like this isn't like uh like an Egyptian pyramid museum where you you might expect to find such a thing. And so the narrator is interested to discover this dead body in the basement of the museum. And part of what fascinates the narrator in that story is the way in which this museum exhibit is also her mausoleum or her tomb. And that the wall text that introduces you to her is also her epitaph and that her very presence in a collection that was not maybe designed to accommodate her introduces this tension between her dead body and the lifeless bodies above her, like all of the sculptures of gods and mythological figures that are just carved out of marble that was never mortal um, versus this uh, like decomposing body uh, just below them in this crypt-like basement exhibition space um, where the narrator encounters a bunch of children gathered around her, her, the, her glass uh, display box taking photos of her. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Bennett. Um, I have a question about another quote in this story, and that is about how the children viewing this mummy are more interested in her, the mummy, uh, than in these surrounding works of art, because they, they can tell that the mummy is, quote, closer to them in time, end quote. Uh, can you explain this concept, how the mummy is closer to these children in time? 
Sure. Um, I was thinking about ekphrasis as a literary tradition. So like a classic example of this is um, Keats's Ode on a Grecian Urn, where he is interested in the possibility of art to defeat death and to stop time and to freeze mortal bodies in this dilated moment um, where they're just on the side of an urn, neither moving nor decaying um, and are uh, like eternally preserved in that way. Um, and I thought, yeah, the narrator identifies this interesting tension between um, a body whose decomposition has been paused by preservation and mummification and so on, who used to exist in time um, and has now passed beyond it, is now dead, um, being exhibited in the same space with these more um, classically artistic attempts to stop time or to defeat death, like the, the statues above, which freeze a mortal body, the body of whoever modeled for them, in a marble form that is immune to decomposition, but is completely outside time and outside mortality because um, the marble is, is inorganic. Um, and I'll say that this piece is sort of written in conversation with the piece that ends the collection, which is a similar short one paragraph long ekphrastic well text written to accompany one of Nicholas's images. And in that one, the narrator becomes fascinated by this mosaic of a Medusa uh, Gorgon that he finds in the hallway of a library. And in that text, Medusa, the narrator, thinks a lot about the, the project of literature to turn people into statues, like writing a poem about someone as, as a way of preserving their memory and carving a statue of them that is immune to time and immune to decay. And so there's a kind of dialogue across the collection between those two pieces um, about what it means to be taken outside of time through art um, and how ekphrasis as a way of making different competing media of art and different forms of art speak out to one another. Um, how ekphrasis translates, um, yeah, living beings into dead forms in different ways, in different media. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that answer, Bennett. Um, I'm now, before uh, our break, going to take a moment to jump out of this collection of stories. And speaking of being outside of mortality, um, ask you a question about your novel, A Questionable Shape. Uh, what does it mean now or a few years ago when this novel was released? What does it mean to write a zombie novel? What kind of cultural connotations and contexts does a zombie novel bring with it uh, right now um, in this era? I think that answer is really different now than, than when I wrote it. Um, mm -hmm. So I was writing it because I was really interested in, in the undead as limit figures of consciousness that they neither remember their past lives nor are truly forgetful of them because they return to sites that they uh, that are habitual um, or sites of nostalgia. Mm -hmm. um, they're neither fully conscious nor fully unconscious. And all of those kind of dichotomies animate the narrator's curiosity in the novel. Um, mm -hmm. And I was thinking a lot about, uh, yeah, zombies from mind-body philosophy as well, which are creatures that behave like us, but on the inside lack all conscious experience. Um, in terms of like a larger cultural context, that novel was interested in ecological catastrophe and it was written through the lens of Katrina. It's, a, it's set in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which is where I'm from. Mm -hmm. um, there are lots of references made to hurricanes and to flooding um, and the government response that's in place to deal with the, what is essentially a refugee population, like a mm -hmm. bunch of undead bodies that have reanimated and need to be housed or quarantined somewhere. Um, those agencies like FEMA are figured through a post-Katrina lens. 
now, 10 years later, I've lived through a pandemic um, and through like a virus of, of COVID-19. And I think the novel probably reads differently um, through that lens and, and certainly would have been written differently. And to just, yeah, to rephrase your question, like it would mean something different to write about zombies now post COVID. And I think that is also true of other zombie novels that came out like right on the cusp of COVID, like Ling Ma's Severance, um, just kind of a spookily prescient epidemic novel um, that yeah, uh, is very uncanny um, after our own experience with COVID in America. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, another zombie novel, not that this gentleman needs a plug, uh, that I read after COVID, written before COVID, was Zone One by Colson Whitehead. Um, not a lot of folks realize that Colson Whitehead wrote a zombie novel, um, who discovered him from the Underground Railroad forward. But um, check both of these novels out, listeners. We are going to stop here to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Bennett Sims. Book and Podcast would like to thank Libro.fm Audiobooks for their sponsorship. Libro.fm has the same audiobooks at the same prices as their major competitor. You know the name. But instead of supporting the Big River, you'll be supporting your favorite neighborhood bookstores. Please head on over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore, explore booksellers in the process. I'm back with Bennett Sims, author of Other Minds and Other Stories, which is published by our friends at $2 Radio. Bennett, before we move on to another story in this collection, uh, I have a question about other authors via the introduction to the advanced reading copy of your collection by uh, your publisher, Eric Obanoff. And listeners, Eric was on the 100th episode of this podcast a few years ago. Check it out if you're so inclined. Uh, But Bennett, Eric compares you to Joshua Cohen, Hernan Diaz, uh, Carmen Maria Machado, in the past, you've been compared to David Foster Wallace and others. Uh, what Bennett goes on in the head of a writer such as yourself when you were compared to all of these writers? Everything, anything, nothing? Um, I, I, yeah, I like being put into like elective affinities with other writers or being put into cohorts. Um, some of them for personal reasons, like Carmen is a, a friend of mine. We went to um, graduate school together and have been readers and fans of each other's work for a long time. And I mm-hmm. certainly consider myself to be influenced by her work. And so, and I teach it all the time. So to be compared to her um, is uh, flattering. David Foster Wallace was my teacher in undergraduate um, and one of the very early readers for the essay that became A Questionable Shape, my zombie novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, yeah, personally gratified to think that readers discover affinities or connections between my fiction and his. Um, and even, yeah, writers who I don't know, uh, personally like Hernan Diaz or, or Joshua Cohen, I'm a huge admirer of their work. Um, and I, yeah, I think that these comparisons gratify me in part because I, I do think genealogically about my stories in the sense that I, when I'm writing something, have a constellation of other authors in mind that that story is in conversation with. So like just the two we were talking about, I was thinking about Lydia Davis or thinking about Thomas Bernhard, who has this really great book of one paragraph long stories um, called The Voice Imitator um, that I return to often. 
Um, so I am, yeah, I am a writer who thinks about influence, who thinks about dialogue with other writers. And so when other readers respond to that in my work, um, yeah, I find it gratifying. Yeah, absolutely. What would you tell one of your students if the national media began comparing them to David Foster Wallace or, or Carmen Maria Machado? Um, I, yeah, I assume my students would be excited um, by the comparison. Um, yeah, I mean, influence and imitation is something that I actually think a lot about in my classes. So I teach a class on Bernhard called Voice Imitators, where we think about how different writers have taken formal features that he's closely associated with them and adapted them toward their own purposes, whether that's writing in block paragraphs or writing long rants or writing long sets of nested monologues or writing like repetitive downwardly spiraling um, run on sentences and prose. Um, and it's always interesting to read Bernhard alongside different writers who are, you can recognize or channeling his voice and channeling his formal influence, whether it's like Garth Greenwell writing in the block paragraph or Horacio Castellano Boya, um, Azrian van der Olumi, Patrick Cottrell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, uh, I do encourage students to think about influence and to think about their work as belonging to traditions of formal devices and sentence styles um, that are being reworked through different authors. Um, and then whether or not they find it gratifying to have that tradition identified in their work by, by a reviewer or by a reader or something is, a, I guess, a question for them. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Uh, let's now jump into the second story in this collection, which is titled unknown. Um, first, much of this story revolves around cell phones. Uh, back in the olden times, when I was taking creative writing workshops, incorporating technology, cell phones, email, etc. was frowned upon. Uh, do you remember this happening? Why do you think this was happening? Um, and when did we begin to accept that our uh, technological overlords are an ever-present and omnipresent thing? Yeah, that's an interesting question. It's not something I remember hearing a lot in my own creative writing classes or literature classes. Um, I think it's always it's always interesting to incorporate new technology into fiction. Um, in this story in particular, one of the reasons um, I was interested in it is that it's a story about paranoia and jealousy. So it's about uh, a protagonist who becomes really suspicious of his partner after he loans his phone to a complete stranger and they both start receiving these uncanny unknown calls and uncanny voice recordings that seem to be eavesdropping on, on them. Mm. Um, and smartphones seems like a really technologically interesting portal to allow that kind of paranoia into the story, like a paranoia that's really coming from this protagonist unconscious, um, but is finding its way into the story through this technology. Um, and part of the reason smartphones are conducive to it, I think, is that they are technologies of surveillance as much as they are technologies of communication that like they keep this omniscient archive of every text you send or receive they track your location um, and your and all your data um, they have phones and and microphones and recording devices built into them mm -hmm. um, and so it really is kind of like a, a swiss army knife of paranoia um, for that kind of protagonist to have in his pocket at all times yeah, and um, I'm going to ask you some follow-up questions that are going to unpack some of the things you just said. Uh, I definitely can see why you were not taught to shy away from technology if you were studying under David Foster Wallace, um, but 
yeah i remember i just remember putting email in a story and that attitude being like oh email surely isn't something that's going to be permanent and like <laughs> is anyone even going to understand this uh in the future um but this story opens as you said when a, a woman a stranger approaches our protagonist and asks to use his cell phone uh, what is the difference bennett between approaching a stranger and asking to use their personal cell phone and walking into a business and asking to use their business phone which more likely than not is you know a phone that plugs into a wall somewhere. Yeah, it's a great distinction and a really useful one. It kind of puts it, you put your finger right on what is unsettling to the protagonist about this request. And it, it is that the cell phone is not just a tool of communication, but a tool of surveillance or omniscient archiving. That one of the anxieties he has when he hands the phone over to this woman is that she's going to copy his contacts list or she's going to get into his email or his bank information or something. And one of the first things he does when he hands it over is like disable Bluetooth and try to log out of all of these personal archives so that she can't access them. And it's this tiny moment of interpersonal paranoia before we even know what's going on in his relationship when he gets home. Um, so there's like this first trespass where he chooses not to trust a stranger um, who's asking him um, for like charity essentially um, to use his phone. Um, and then it kind of blossoms into this larger paranoia that comes to dominate the rest of the story. Yeah, absolutely. And um, in your opinion, Bennett, what is more personal, a person's cell phone their or uh, their wallet or purse? Um, I suppose it all depends on what you or a character in a story keeps in their wallet or their purse. Um, yeah, I can imagine some characters or some people being much more protective of their phones than their wallets. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I remember um, running an off-site author event uh, where a bookstore selling books and most of us use our phones in Square or some such thing to ring books up and uh, a bookseller saying she didn't want to use her personal phone because it would be akin to lending someone her purse. Um, that's a quote that's always stuck in my mind. Um, well, Bennett, Amongst the other uh, artists that you've been compared to, on a blurb for this book, you're compared to Alfred Hitchcock. Um, what specifically uh, do you think Hitchcock would find terrifying about cell phone technology? How would he use this technology if he were writing today? That is a great question. So Hitchcock is a one of yeah a filmmaker who I admire a lot and who I've engaged with in my fiction one of the stories in white dialogues takes place at a lecture on vertigo um and reproduces um screen grabs or film film stills from vertigo and rear window um and vertigo is also an important movie uh for my zombie novel if uh, where the narrator reads vertigo as a movie about undeath um about someone being uh, reincarnated from um from the dead but yeah, one of the things I like a lot about him um, is his interest in paranoia. Um, and also because he is a filmmaker who's very sensitive to the role of props in a plot. Um, like he's a famous coiner or popularizer of the MacGuffin, like the item that just circulates throughout the economy of the narrative. 
and drives all of the characters' desires and, and conflicts um, and behaviors. Um, I think he is someone who would have been really interested in cell phones. Like even in his films, he was very interested in rotary phones. Um, and they are sites of communication, but also sites of surveillance. He's very interested in wrong man narratives um, where someone is not guilty, but is presumed to be guilty and then has to disprove their guilt or behave more and more guiltily and become trapped in that narrative that's been spun around them. And also from the other side, characters who become very suspicious of their partners or um, their acquaintances and presume a guilt that is not there and then become trapped in a narrative of paranoia. Um, and I think that, yeah, um, he would have had a lot of fun with a smartphone as a MacGuffin for that kind of that kind of plot. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that answer, Bennett. Um, finally, and listeners, we barely grazed the surface of this collection. There's so much to talk about in every story. But I do want to ask you one question about the title story, Other Minds. Um, in this story, you talk about reading on a Kindle, specifically referencing the underlying passages on the Kindle where you can see 650 readers have highlighted this passage. Um, and Bennett, I'm not going to act like I've never read on a Kindle, but I stare at a screen all day for work. And when I go home, I don't want to continue reading on a screen uh, for the most part. Um and I don't want to support Amazon. I want to I want to support my book selling friends and indie bookstores who kick money back into their communities and their community infrastructures as opposed to uh, Jeff Bezos's dream of taking a rocket to Mars or, or wherever. Um, but what are you saying about these highlighted passages? Are they helpful or are they a hindrance? Do they offer another layer for better or worse to one's reading experience when reading on one of these devices? Thank you. That's a great question. Um, I, I will say for listeners that I, I do not plug the Kindle in that story. <laughs> I genericize it and, and call yeah. it like an e-reader or something. Yes. Um, but yes, the Kindle is very much on my mind and that, that feature in particular. Um, so the story is called Other Minds. It's about a, a character who's simply called the reader. Um, and there's this line in the story, all his life, if someone had asked him why he read, he would have answered that he was curious about other minds, that like the reason he reads is to see how other people, other writers see the world and process their consciousness and language. And I was interested in approaching that story about reading, that it's about intersubjectivity, that it's about empathy from a more, from the, from the direction of horror. So not it being a benevolent curiosity or benevolent empathy, but actually him encountering other minds that make him anxious or make him frightened. And so the story is about the sense of alienation he has when he's reading a book and 650 people have underlined a line that he doesn't like, that he, he doesn't get why they underlined it. Um, and there's something alienating about the that uh, peek into those other minds um, because they're so different from his. And then he's equally alienated by the fact that the lines he does like are not underlined by anyone. Um, and the more he thinks about this conundrum, the more alienated he feels from other minds, not only on the e-reader, but in the physical space around him whenever he goes to a cafe to read and is looking at all the other people um, reading newspapers and magazines or other e-readers e and stuff. The last thing I'll say about the story is that there's another story in the collection called Introduction to the Reading of Hegel, which also has a, a character who's simply called the reader. Um, and like this character in Other Minds, that character spends most of that story trying to imagine what other minds are thinking. Uh, he's trying to write a cover letter for a philosophy fellowship, and he's wondering what the judge will make of his sentences and whether she'll like them or not, or whether she'll hate him and reject him and stuff. And so these are both two stories that are, in a sense, 
horror stories about other minds and horror stories about reading and you know the paranoia or anxiety of trying to project yourself into someone else's head mm-hmm. um which is why i also chose this as as you as you said the title story um, mm-hmm. in a sense all of these stories are about other minds and other stories yeah absolutely and um i don't expect you to know the answer to this but do you have any idea of what the threshold is for these uh these quotations like to me it would be much more interesting to see you know three people highlighted this quote um it seems when you get to the point of 650 that uh, it probably becomes a you know a loop where people are like well i might as well highlight this too um do you do you happen to know i'm I'm wondering what the lowest number is that i would see if i were reading that is a really fascinating question there's actually that that's a question that crosses the mind of, of the character in a, a weird way where he, he thinks about how people might just be underlining lines because 650 people have underlined them and he compares mm-hmm. it to like desire lines through a field. Like if enough people walk a shortcut, it just flattens this path of least resistance through the field. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, in terms of your actual question, uh, I have no idea. I feel like I've seen sentences that say like four people have highlighted these, mm-hmm. but yeah, surely there must be, it can't be one. Um, right there must be a quorum of at least two two or three readers have to like something before kendall takes note of it yeah absolutely maybe maybe i'll go delve into the settings of one of these devices and see if i can find something where like every single line of a, of a story is is highlighted at some point um well thank you bennett and thank you for writing this wonderful collection uh which is sure to raise a lot of eyebrows and be one of the best uh, collections of the year Listeners, I've been speaking with Bennett Sims, author of Other Minds and Other Stories, which is published by our friends at $2 Radio. Bennett, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Once again, I would like to thank Bennett Sims for joining me. Copies of Other Minds and Other Stories can be ordered at www.explorebooksellers.com. Free shipping for members of Explore More Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.